places like brands, do they need a great story to be economically successful? And if you had to tell that story of your local area, what would it be and where would you get it from? Would you look to the data or something else? I'm Mike Spicer. And I'm David Marlowe. Working to create a shared understanding of the potential and direction of places is so often at the heart of what we do as professionals in our sector. So where better to start for our first ever edition of LED Confidential? In this episode, we explore the tensions between data and storytelling in economic development. Maybe a good place to start would be, what do we mean by a story of a place? Because I think that that's the, that's the starting point isn't it? And I think stories about place are really the mental maps that people have of geographies, how they think about them. And I think the interesting thing about that is that if you like everyone who makes a place a place, whether that's the people who live there, the people who work there, the people who um, start businesses there, the people who govern places and make decisions about public spending... All of them have their own mental map of of a place, and all of them are subject to the power of storytelling. So stories are an important feature of how we interact with place. But it just strikes me, I don't know what you think, David, but it, it just does strike me that the kind of stories that people have, the kind of mental maps that people have of places can be very different. I think that's absolutely right, and it varies both across places and indeed within them. And I, I suppose that you know, if you took a current government policy priority, let's take levelling up as something which is very much on the agenda of local economic development professionals at the moment. You know, Levelling up in a relatively successful economically part of the South might look very different to a less successful place in the Midlands or indeed in the in the north or indeed in one of the uh, the, the devolved nations and I suppose one one of the things that we're going to discuss this afternoon is how does evidence and intelligence inform those mental maps and how do you then use it to actually formulate priorities for delivering change is that sort of a a good point to begin and, and to bring in our guest? That's a great point to, to bring in our guest. So it, it's my great pleasure to, to bring uh, Beck Riley into the podcast. If you have worked in local economic development in the UK over the last decade or so, there's a very good chance your path will have crossed uh, the path of Beck. She's one of the, the country's best known custodians of um, economic evidence that we as economic development professionals used. And she's currently at City Ready at the University of Birmingham. So welcome to the LED Confidential Beck. Thanks a lot. I think my initial reaction actually to, to this problem is is exactly what you alluded to, David, who, what sort of story, who for, and what purpose. And I think that's that's where evidence um, can help best in terms of forming different stories, different messages for different purposes. But I do think that at the core and at the essence of economic development is having a very, very strong and short and unique identity for place. And I think the difficulty is, is doing that 
filtering down all that evidence into into one key set of goals that everybody t- can hang on to. Um, and the danger actually is with economic development, you do see this time and time again, is that economic development, evidence bases, and then strategies that flow from them become carbon copies of each other. And it's partly because you do have to look at a set of things and everybody has to look at them and then understand where you feature, what your problems are, what your challenges are, and then not enough time is focused on what is our narrative within that. And I think that's that's the biggest challenge really for for the evidence base against this this story and narrative, because there is a big difference between being able to tell a story about a place and being able to recount a whole lot of data that that just gives you evidence points. And that that's the challenge for all places, really. And there's a skill to it. Is it as simple as 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 the sort of chicken and egg paradox? You know, which comes first, the evidence or the vision or the ambition of a place? Or is there more to it than that, you know, in, in the sense that you know, GVA per capita or, um, uh, you know, educational attainment or uh, productivity per hour is, is, in a sense, only, a, is only useful in support of a particular narrative and a particular vision and a particular set, set of ambitions? Well, I mean, that's an interesting point in, in in the sense of, do we care about GVA? It isn't a good measure of wealth of individuals. And really, place, places should be about individuals. There is no place with the pe- without the people in them. We have to be very careful about what measures we use and why we use them and what purpose we're using them for in terms of the, you know, the outcome that we want to achieve. And I think I think that it is a bit of a chicken and egg in the sense of none of this happens in a vacuum. I'm a big fan of understanding the history and where places have come from because those path dependencies that are set out many, many, many years ago can shape and help us understand why we have the particular economy that we have in places. If you if you think about Birmingham, actually, it wasn't shaped by, you know, rivers that could run mills it was shaped originally by a mass immigration uh, that, that built the metals industry and it was you know people running away from uh, economic and you know physical and violence etc and the religious problems setting up their own little business in making and manufacturing jewelry and etc and today we have all the strengths in advanced manufacturing, car making, metals industry, because of 150 years of that sort of skills and investment, and it and it shapes the place. You know, the the, the city became known as the city of a thousand trades, and it was because it's very small, micro industrial, and that that perception still exists. We still have the one of the highest um, startup rates. That entrepreneurialism, that working for yourself is a trait and a cultural embeddedness that has lasted. So I think it's it's about your history, it's about your circumstances now, and it's about where do you want to get to. And that's that, those are the things you, you have to understand and define to be able to see how you get to that future and what your strengths and weaknesses are. 
Thanks. That's a really, that's a really good point. And Birmingham, very close to my heart, is somewhere that I actually did work, uh, work and live in for, for, for quite a while. Uh, I mean, it raises so many issues. I mean, Mike, do you want to come in here with, with some of the things that that stimulated for you? I think that the thing that it really stimulated for me, David, was this idea that a story is not just a snapshot in time. It's actually about how a place evolves over time. And as 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 we in the sector know, it's much easier to do that by looking backwards and saying, here's the data we've collected and, and, and here's what we know. Here's how we can characterise a place in terms of the, the metrics of economic success, whether that's how, a, how the labour market performs or which businesses are important in an area. And then there's the really, really tough bit, which is trying to work out where a place is going. And I think what's interesting about that is that it throws up not just questions of data capture, but it also throws up questions of governance as well, because of course we can produce forecasts of places based on a kind of business as usual. You know, if if, if we continue to develop in the way that we have, here's you know, here's where we'll be in five years' time. But typically, within economic development, that's not what we're satisfied with. What we're sat, what we want to try to do, is to shape the future, not just be passive observers of it. So I think you know, that raises the question of kind of how much agency do we have as economic development professionals in shaping the story when we think about how it might play out in the future? Do we want it to be different to how it is in the past? And I think um, picking up on Beck's point about Birmingham's origins and one thing that that Birmingham has in common with, with the place that I live, which is Cambridge in England, is that we tend to think about our future as a sort of evolution of our best self. You know, so we think about, you know, what it is that we most like to tell the world about ourselves. So in Birmingham and, and, and the broader West Midlands, we like to talk about the prowess of that part of England in, in the role it plays for the country around advanced manufacturing and around you know kind of very high you know high tech um, research and manufacturing and so on and ditto for Cambridge as well it has that history of scientific discovery and and technological development that's that's been there for a long time and that, it, that it's a story that it likes to tell the outside world um, because it likes people to be attracted to the city by that. Um, but it's also a kind of story that we like to think about in terms of our future too. Um, it's a story we like to tell investors that might be thinking of coming to the city and, and, and establishing themselves there, to students who might be thinking about coming to the university and so on. So I think it's that kind of fluid nature of story and place narrative that I find really interesting and how it might change over time and what kind of things cause us to reevaluate the the type of stories we want to tell, the type of futures that we want. Actually, I find that really interesting. I mean, one of the questions I'd ask to both of you then is, is, does a vision or a narrative of place which does look forward, are, are there, in a sense, universal questions that they try to answer? So, for example, what both of you have said, and particularly you, Mike, about about your interpretation of Birmingham Cambridge is this thing about telling what the best would be. Is that a universal question that any leadership team of place has to ask when it is framing its vision for the future? 
And if that's the question, that then, in a sense, requires certain baseline evidence and then certain intelligence for modelling how things might might look in the future. I and mean, I'll just tell you one story of when I went to become, this was a little while back now, this was around 2000, I went to uh, become chief exec of Doncaster, which many of you will know is has been quite a deprived uh, city and set of communities with actually very significant governance problems at the time. Um, you know, after having been there for six weeks, I remember I wrote a paper for council which basically just said I've been here for about six weeks I've looked at the evidence I've looked at you know I visited as many of the communities as possible and and I'd really like council just to have a discussion about what would Doncaster look like by 2020 remember this was in actually 2001 I think what would Doncaster look like if by 2020 it achieved its full potential and actually, to be fair to the council, they did have a discussion about this. And there was a range of things about deprivation and about young people and about governance change and so on, which we needed a baseline for. And then we needed uh, programmes to progress. And, and I suppose actually one of the proudest moments of my life, actually my professional life, was about three or four weeks later, a sort of seniorish manager, but not, not a direct report, rang me up one day and said, oh, David, I've been working on the AFP goals. Uh, and what do you think of this? And he gave me some example. And I said to him, what do you mean by AFP goals? What's, what's an AFP goal? And he said, it's the achieving our full potential goals, uh, uh, which had come from this question I'd posed at the council meeting. Um, and... That, to me, I mean, I learned a lot from that, which was about Doncaster as a formerly actually a coalfields community, which had actually felt very much the victim of Thatcherite cuts and so on and so forth, wanting to move from being the victim and being deprived to actually having a positive future. Uh, and, and that's why although I didn't even know, recognise the AFP acronym, it had really changed the way the council were thinking about things. And I suppose I come back to the point is, are there one or two universal questions that places have to ask themselves? And what are the evidential and intelligence requirements of answering those questions? For me, it goes back to you know, if you think about who you're talking to, who 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 has that mental map of a place in their heads, and how might they be different? What are the things that that are common to the different audiences for a story? And for me, the commonality is opportunity. What is the greatest opportunity for economic? development and success within a place because that's the kind of thing of course that you would want to advertise to the outside world of uh, private investors for instance but it's also the kind of um, thing that you would want to tell government if you're looking for support from um, a public sector source uh, of funding and it's also the kind of positive stories that the private sector like likes to coalesce around so i think that issue of kind of where where is the opportunity for growth that's the common thing that kind of brings people it's not the only thing but it's it is a common feature i think of of the the stories that people like to tell 
And I think I think that it's quite interesting that in terms of whether there's you know a few common things. I think if we go to a fairly purist approach to economic development, you're looking at things that add value to your economy, and that usually starts with inward investment. And everybody chases inward investment. And actually, Treasury directs you to do that because ultimately, inward investment adds to UK PLC as well. Everything else is just shuffling the deck chairs around different places, isn't it? I think that's something that places automatically look to. However, some places have more assets to be able to do that than others. And some places have more capacity to do that. I don't think we properly investigate those assets and capacity at a local level. I think sometimes, especially, you know, when we we tend to aim for the big, well-known touristy type things, but we do, I did some work up in the Northwest and what was actually interesting, we we interviewed a whole host of investors, people that had moved and located into the region and asked them, why did you move and locate? And it was quite interesting because they didn't really say because of the labour market, because of the property, etc. They sort of made decisions based on their knowledge of a place. And their knowledge was usually very personal. So my kids went to university there, so I knew the place. I knew about the football team. I knew about the golf course. I knew about the great tourist attraction or somewhere to go on holiday. And it's those sorts of really micro personal individual decisions that people make which I think in economic development we sometimes forget that businesses are not these these entities that have their own mind they are the mind of whoever runs them whoever makes decisions and we don't pay enough attention to how do we influence those decision makers to make different decisions. I think the concentrating on those people and then the individuals and what makes them change their minds or make decisions we don't put enough effort into and the same would go you know when we're talking about economic development and the people that are already in place what do they want what makes them make decisions about remaining in a place you know if you think about students and graduates how do you retain them to build your uh, local workforce Birmingham, again, an interesting example because their graduate retention rate has shifted dramatically in the last sort of five years while I've been uh, in the West Midlands. And um, that that shift of retention has matched the growth in jobs for graduates and the, you know, the regeneration of the three cities that have been able to retain them. So I think it, it's it's seeing how all these things interrelate, but importantly, thinking about you know the fact that businesses are a group of people that make decisions, just as places are a group of people that make decisions, and how do we use evidence to inform that decision making? And I think that that's the bit that sometimes can be either done done sort of as a side, because quite often you you'll bring in somebody to help you write your evidence base, help you write your strategy, and then they go away. But there's no embeddedness in the place because of that. I mean, how, how do we actually mitigate that? And how do you actually think, you know, particularly, I guess, in a sort of post-COVID type of you know, build back better, how, how do we create or embed the evidence and intelligence functions that teams need to begin 
the process of defining what build back better would mean for whether it's Birmingham or, or or some other place. I mean, indeed, I thought it was interesting that you you framed things in terms of the three cities. Uh, where does that leave, you know, perhaps the Dudleys, Walsalls, Solihulls, uh, which are all different, or, uh, of the West Midlands? It's quite an interesting one, that, because I think there are an awful lot of towns and, and places that could really capitalise on the change, especially around working from home. And the places that have prepared and accepted and decided to do things a bit differently. And I think that that takes a number of decision making processes. Number one, that you're happy of being, you're happy being a, what we would call a dormitory town. But the idea of a dormitory town now is very different in the last three years. And whether it sticks or not is about whether where you live has the right assets for you to work from home, etc. So I think there is a real opportunity for some of these places to really, you know, invest in that infrastructure. And that means, you know, are there flexible workspaces that you can just drop in? Have you got enough coffee shops type thing? Have you got enough places that you can escape the builders that are next door? It's all that sort of stuff at a local level that could really change the way these places operate. And having a local offer around leisure and retail that capitalises on the changes that people have gone through in the last few years, whether places will be able to do that is 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 an interesting thing. I mean, I I, I actually live in Salford, and they and I got involved in some discussions around the future of Salford as a as an interested individual rather than my professional capacity. And it's quite interesting because you think about yourself and why you moved into a place. Well, I moved there because I could afford the houses at the time and there was good schools. And that was it. And I don't think that we connect that well enough, you know, with the economic development elements. We don't think about how, you know, what's that connectivity and why people move in. So I think it's just as valuable to be a good place to live as it is a good place to work. And that that's, I think, the change that I would hope would stick. I, I was going to say, Beck, as well, one of the, if, if there's ever a topic within economic development that so desperately requires looking at the evidence, um, it's got to be the stickiness of uh, pandemic-related trends in, in workplace behaviours. So remote working, the the split between virtual meetings and face to face meetings and so on and I have to say I I'd, I'd be I'd be good to get to get your your view on this and David's as well I have to say that I, my, my my thinking on this has evolved quite drastically over the the last sort of eighteen months I, I kind of started off thinking that the scale of the investment required to enable remote working even though we were kind of on the cusp of it anyway with um, some of the tools that that, that we have uh, the software tools and so on that it was unlikely that that would completely unwind that there would be some stickiness to it but every time i look at the data around this i seem to see something completely different something completely different and i i kind of i i find my view of it changing you know what one month i i i'm i think to myself actually these changes are nowhere near as sticky as perhaps I would have thought 12 months ago. And then you see a reintroduction of pandemic restrictions here in England and you see how quickly remote working can develop again. 
you know overnight almost what what what's your view of that and kind of as someone who looks at the evidence on a very regular basis have you formed an opinion yet of how those kind of pandemic related changes how sticky they are and what that means actually for how places advertise themselves to the outside world does it really mean that places now have to think harder about attracting people and work as as much as they would historically have thought about attracting employers I mean, I think right at the very beginning of the pandemic, I did some work where I reviewed what happened in 1918, and it was quite interesting. A lot of the a lot of the things that happened then have come to pass now, and it's quite it's the way people behave, you know, and and what happens after that. And we were also commissioned to do some work with the um, the central business district in in Birmingham, where where we were looking at what the what is the future for a, a bid district in an area which is predominantly business professional services where the vast majority of staff had left that district. That would, that's what we were asked to do. And we'd, we'd done some work previously, about 18 months before, with the same businesses looking at the sector in the region and how it contributed. And what was really interesting in that, work, in that initial piece of work is how much the you know the official statistics underestimated the workers in that area so the relative numbers between those businesses and the numbers that you saw in the official stats and it was largely because the workforce is already was already highly mobile and highly flexible people would have a client they'd be based out of birmingham but they'd have a client in glasgow or they'd have a client and they'd be moving about all over the country to get to those clients and the impact then was that they were all businesses already had a very flexible approach to working. What happened then when we went back to them and asked them about this, all that they'd really done is accelerated a plan they already had. And that was partly because the you know the city centre was overheating, so it's very costly to get space, but they were growing exponentially. I mean the growth in the sector has been massive. It's a, it's a third of the economy in the West Midlands um, and third of employment and nearly a third of GVA. So it's a huge sector, but what the, the pandemic did was accelerated the way they were moving anyway. And it was partly because of demand of young people coming into the business. They wanted much more flexibility. They weren't really interested in get, becoming a partner. So they were having to think about how they work with them and how how they grew them as individuals. So I think in that in that sector, which obviously, you know, for, for some cities is quite a big sector, especially London. And I think this is one of the problems London has in terms of coming back to full strength. That That change was already happening. And what's happened now is it's been solidified and it's been embedded into the practices of that business. I, I, I find that yeah, that's really, really, really interesting. I mean, I suppose what both of, both, both of you have suggested is that going forward, we're going to need to develop ways of accessing much more granular, real-time information and turning it into intelligence that's useful for public policy decision making. I mean, how well prepared do you think 
even big public authorities, I know you work or you have been working with the West Midlands Combined Authority. I mean, how how prepared are the structures and processes for that type of intelligence and analysis? And indeed, for that type of decision making after you receive the intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, I mean, it certainly has been a problem for us and we've seen it in the research that we've done sort of nationally we've done quite a few pieces that were actually used in the leveling up paper actually which looked at the problem of capacity within places the last 10 years the capacity within places has been cut back and one of the things that's first to go is the things that are usually seen as nice to have and that's quite often research and intelligence I mean, the the onus is on professionals like myself to make sure that people recognise that it's valuable and it it has impact. But it is something that that, that a lot of organisations have had to get, had had to cut out of their budgets. And then the problem with that is that the technology and as as you said, the you know the use of real time data, accessing real time data, and um, being able to manipulate it, etc. These are all skills that are in massively high demand across all sectors and the trouble with the local government is it cannot compete with the private sector on the wages that it can offer so so there is there there needs to be a lot of investment in growing your own collaborations like we've got in the west midlands of partnerships with um the university base and i know the northeast is is about to do something similar and so you collaborate and and develop that capacity um, and then the problem is he's holding on to it and that means you know investing in them valuing them and seeing the opportunity that they can bring because fundamentally if you're making a case to government you need to have good evidence base and you have to be credible otherwise they don't give you money it's, it's as simple as that isn't it i was going to um just pick up on your the example that you gave earlier back and and it kind of sparked off something in me which was that it's interesting it, as as the pandem- as pandemic restrictions were eased in England, you had a, a kind of a series of politicians jump up and say, "Oh, you know, either we should all be back in the office, or we should we should all be working from home, uh, depending on kind of where you were on that debate." But I I was thinking of something slightly different, which was that it struck me and and continues to strike me that you can get figures from the business world actually popping up and saying very, very different things about the world as they see it evolving um, over the next, over the coming year. So you will see people from the world of professional services and banking, for instance, who will say, no, ours is a face-to-face business. We have, there are actually regulatory reasons for that uh, around security of information and things like that. And so there are technical reasons why we prefer a proximity as, as, well, as much as anything else. But you know that that's all well and good but i think the challenge is then to make sure that that doesn't become the narrative so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking just because one industry or one company sees it in a certain way that they imagine the rest of the economy is going to be like that and that that has struck me as one of the really positive roles actually that data and insight can play in a time like this because it gives us a kind of an impartial source of insight about how the world is actually evolving as opposed to how people might imagine it is evolving. 
And every time I, I, I hear people get up and, and say, well, the world's going to be like this or the world's going to be like that, it just reminds me of that, actually, um, that at the, at the end of the day, you do need an impartial source of information. And that has to come from organisations um, such as City Ready and other um, regional um, observatories and the like. One of the interesting things with that work, actually, what you're highlighting there, Mike, is is exactly the point. Because what we ended up then doing is saying, well, if if only a third of these businesses are going to bring their staff back, and I have to say, a big driver of it as well was the sustainability. So reducing their transport and meeting their carb net zero. And if they're going to do that, then what's the effect on the rest of the place? And interestingly, given you know earlier on in the discussion what we're talking about in sense of place, is we came back to that that district has to regain a strong sense of place that is about giving a reason for those people to come back in a couple of days a week. So it's the wraparound cultural aspects. Um, it's the dining. It's the being able to go to the pub with your work colleagues after work. It's all of that that is the focus of how what the what the vision is for that area now so they're doing a lot more on the culture and and you know they, they they've come up with this idea and concept that they would have somebody who would be a sort of a cultural custodian and it comes back to that place why do we want to be there what's what's our mental map that points us in that direction for those things and that that's the thing that has to be rebuilt i think after covid because you've got to get over the fear you've got to get over all those issues i suppose ultimately there we've spoken a lot now rightly about the the owners of the evidence and the intelligence i mean we but perhaps before we leave, we ought to speak a little bit about the owners of the narrative, because I think one of the early things you said, Bex, was that actually some of the um, some of the areas in the West Midlands that aren't in the the three cities, you know, they can choose or they they can decide that they want to put in place policies to be a really high quality dormitory town but actually you know, have a really nice quality of life quality of experience quite a lot of opportunities and, and I, I suppose somebody has to make that choice or articulate that choice or discuss that choice with businesses with residents with communities uh, and, and how do we get the longevity of that uh, in a in a world where Trends are actually changing very, very rapidly, and it is a very, very fundamental choice. You know, actually prioritising high quality of life over productivity improvement or attracting inward investment. So, where does the ownership of the narrative reside over the the medium and long term, and how do people in the evidence and analysis field work with them? I mean, it, I mean, it's an interesting question that because I think. It, the ownership of the narrative is a is a thing that is in flux because I think we fool ourselves if we think as economic development professionals we own that narrative because you know individuals again places will own that narrative they'll talk about what it's like to be in a place and the that's something that will change and and adapt and I think. I mean, an interesting one would be sort of to think about Manchester and how its narrative has changed and who owned that narrative. 
And I think if we went back 20 years to, you know, when I was growing up in Manchester, the it, it was seen as fairly rough, um, full of criminals, a bit dirty, northern town. And now people are fighting over themselves to get there because it's radically changed the way people view it. And I think that that has happened over a number of a number of ac- activities and actions that have happened that have been completely out of the control of local economic development professionals. I think what Manchester has been good at is spotting them and grabbing them. And if you think of you know the I Love Manchester brand, that was a grassroots thing that came out post the bomb, post the arena bombing, and it was it it was that self-belief that all the councils, etc., really did grab onto and use as part of its promotional process. So I think you have to be you have to be ready to seize narratives that are positives, as Mike mentioned before, but you also have to be in a position to create positive narratives. And it's a blend of the two things. Do I think anybody actually owns those narratives? No, I think a whole bunch of people can actually influence it. A mayor has has sort of the ultimate ability to influence that. And I think, you know, with, with Birmingham, the narrative was very much, it's, you know, concrete city, it's cars, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then in the in the sort of four years in the run up to the pandemic, radically changed its economic growth and real rebuild in the in the centre of Birmingham, which radically changed people's perceptions. Did West Midlands did Birmingham actually capitalise on that? Probably not quick enough before we hit the pandemic. So I think I think it's it's being open to and understanding those narratives. I mean, this is one of the things with the leveling up paper and we've got this pride in place mission and actually we don't really have a way of understanding that we don't really have a way of monitoring it a lot of the data and intelligence that used to be there if we think of the place survey and so on have all gone so that all needs rebuilding to get that real-time data as you said david I'm just just thinking about the uh, the kind of as we kind of finish off the the three questions that we started on because uh, I think you kind of just answered them one by one in a way back so if we're talking about our places like brands I think what we're kind of saying is in in a in a in a way they are um, in the sense that they have the power to attract people that they they are brands in that sense but um, perhaps unlike corporate brands, they can change in radical ways over time. But actually, that that can't be a top-down process. It's a sort of bottom-up kind of process. Um, it isn't something that can be easily uh, dreamed up in a kind of corporate marketing suite. It's something that um, is co-owned by lots of disparate people, and we kind of we're all kind of mucking along together and it and it evolves like that. And we talked about, you know, if you wrote the story of your town, city or region, and what we're saying is actually no one person does. It's actually a set of people often beyond the reach of policy. And it can be grassroots in nature. It can be um, the taxi driver that you meet at the train station. It can be the parent who's looking for a place um, to send their kids to school. It could be somebody who's um, really looking for a place to put down roots and, and, and make their career in a place. And then finally, we asked, kind of, where would the story come from? Would it come from the data 
or would it come from something else? And I think what we've what we've established is that it comes from both, actually. The data are important because without it, we can't know for sure what's actually happening in the world and what's happening in the world shapes perceptions. And we, as economic development professionals, we're as interested in where we're going as where we've come from. And actually... Again, to, to have some handle on that, we need to have a really good handle on the data, and that requires investment, it requires capacity, sustained capacity over time, so we have that, that memory, that sort of corporate memory in institutions and in, and in places. Fantastic uh, summing up, Mike, and uh, many, many thanks to Beck Riley for joining us in the first edition of LED Confidential, and also to all of you who've listened. We hope you found it insightful and interesting. Next time on LED Confidential, join us in May as we lift the lid on what makes a great local economic development organisation and team. As the UK's levelling up white paper makes new demands on the sector and public service reform, we'll explore what excellence looks like and how we can deliver the changes necessary to achieve it. You can look me up, David Marlowe, on my website at www.thirdlifeeconomics.co.uk And you can find me, Mike Spicer, at www.policydepartment.com And if you want to get in touch with our guest, Beck Riley, she can be found at City Ready. That's at www.birmingham.ac.uk slash research slash city, C-I-T-Y, dash ready, R-E-D-I.